Now, last week we started talking about this idea of what, is it, what does it look like to be healthy in kind of the, you know, like the full picture of what health looks like. And so last week we were talking about this idea of spiritual health, and today we want to segue into talking about physical health. And in fact, we're going to talk about this idea of, of five frequently overlooked facets of physical health. And I recognize that maybe that doesn't sound like... Um, I don't know, the pep talk you want to start your week off with or, or what your thoughts about this will be, at least initially. But let me say this, and I know this is an understatement, okay? But maintaining a healthy body, that's not something that's very easy for us to do, is it? That's not something that, that comes with, without thought. Now, when we were children, when we were at that stage of life, our parents governed our habits, Our parents governed our diets, and most likely they made us engage in regular physical activity. I hope Karen Fender won't mind me referencing this, but I always get a kick out of talking to her now adult children. And uh, when they would would come home from school, Karen would say, all right, guys, you got more energy, and you take a lap around the school. There's a school right next door to their house. She'd be like, all right, run a lap. And if they still had a little extra energy, it's like, run one more, right? They remember that fondly, you know. Interestingly, all your children are, 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 are very healthy. So, you know, that's, I, I think that contributed. Um, but when we were at that stage of life, you know, our metabolism operated well. We felt like we could eat whatever we wanted without gaining weight. And generally speaking, I imagine that most of us, when we look at pictures of ourselves from that particular season of life, we tend to look back at that and think, oh, you know, I looked healthy. I looked pretty good at that season of life. And then sometime when we hit our 20s, usually when we get to our mid-20s, we gradually begin to realize that the rules that used to apply to us, uh, they stopped applying. The rules we used to follow, it it, it no longer applies. We could no longer eat whatever we want to eat without consequence, right? The natural flow of our day-to-day life, depending on what we do as an occupation, but for many of us, the natural flow of our day-to-day life no longer included as much activity and as much exercise as what we used to get when we were younger. And if your pattern was anything like mine, you started to grow horizontally, right? That's the pattern of our 20s, right? And complicating matters even more Our responsibilities increase, our stress level tends to balloon during that season of life, and you probably noticed that that maybe you started to self-medicate some of that stress and some of those responsibilities with things like ice cream and with Doritos and, and with French fries or something similar. And I'm convinced, and maybe you'll agree with this, um, but I'm convinced that if, that anyone beyond the age of 25 who looks healthy and feels healthy is not looking or feeling that way by accident. I, I'm guessing that most people past the age of 25 that are at, at a spot where they, they would say that their physical health is good are probably making intentional decisions to contribute to their physical health, most likely on a daily basis. Now, I bring this up because for those of us who follow Christ, there's actually a correlation between our physical health and our spiritual health. Now, I hope that we're interested in making investments in our physical health, but I, I, you know, I hope we could see the value to doing so. But I'd like to take a few moments just to look at some things that we find in Scripture related to our physical health, things that tend to be overlooked facets 
of physical health that maybe don't fall into the typical categories that we tend to put issues of physical health in. And the first one is this, a healthy body. So when we're talking about physical health, when we're talking about healthy bodies, a healthy body is used to give God glory. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. There we read this. It says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Again, that's in 1 Corinthians 6. So I, I'm one of those people who tend to find it relaxing to have something physical to work on. And one of my favorite things to do is to work on things around my house. Maybe some of you saw uh, something I posted on Facebook yesterday, six years ago, exactly six years ago. So it was in the summer of 2013, I happened to be at Lowe's and I passed by a light fixture that I thought, oh, that would look really good on my back deck. And so I bought it. And uh, I brought it home. Now, the light that was on my back deck wasn't broken, so I didn't immediately rush to fix it. And then that light just kind of sat in my garage for six years until yesterday. I happened to come across that light again, and I thought, you know what? I, I'm tired of that thing sitting in a box. And so I went and I installed it on my back porch, and it looks nice. And I'm thinking, why did I wait six years to finally install this thing? But I like to work on things around the house, things that maybe improve the appearance or the function of the home. Um, during the course of this week, I intend on installing a new mailbox, and I'm certain that I'll get it done. You know why I'm certain I'll get it done? Because I took the old one down. And there's nothing that helps you install a mailbox and not wait a long time to do it, then taking the old one down. Even had the awkward experience yesterday of our mail lady pulling up to the house and discovering that the box was missing. It really confused her. It, she drove past the house and then stopped and then backed up. She's like, where'd the box go? I'm used to just, like, it's a Pavlovian thing for her, right? She just sees the box and stops, sees the box and stops, drove right by and then had to back up. And I said, yeah, I took it down, but I'll have a new one up hopefully on Monday. We'll see, right? But I think I will. I think I'll have it up. But I enjoy working on our house, you know, different projects like that most of the time, I guess, depending on what it is. Um, I enjoy it because when I'm doing that, I'm working on the space that the Lord allows us to live in. So I pay for the house. I pay for the repairs on the house. But practically speaking, the house doesn't just belong to me. There are six of us that call that building home. There are six of us who inhabit that space and, and live there. And when you look throughout Scripture multiple times, the Lord uses building analogies to make reference to His family, the church. And Scripture teaches us that the moment we came to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit took up residence within us. Now, we just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, and in that verse, that Scripture tells us that we are now a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's how we're described in that portion of Scripture. That's how our bodies are described in this passage, because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He lives within us. Now, uh, how many of you are from this area? That you, you know, born and raised, grew up here. How many of you are from somewhere else? So I'm going to raise my hand. So that's like half and half. All right. Half of us are from here. Half of us are from somewhere else. Well, I'm from somewhere else. And the somewhere else that I'm from, uh, real estate and things of that nature are a lot cheaper, like, a th like two thirds cheaper 
than what things cost around here. And I remember when we moved to this area, I felt led of the Lord to move here. But one of the things that was a little bit prohibitive in moving here was how much it cost to live here. And I remember being shocked at the price of real estate and really trying to scratch my head how we were going to be able to afford moving here because the real estate was so much more expensive. It was pricey. And, uh, you know, when you look at what Scripture tells us, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you could see that the Lord understands pricey things in the sense of a pricey residence. Because in this portion of Scripture, it tells us that the Lord paid a steep price for something. Specifically, we're told that before the Holy Spirit came to dwell within us, our lives and our bodies were purchased by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We were bought at the most expensive price. And the Scripture teaches us because we were bought at that most expensive price, we are no longer our own. We belong to God. Therefore, God calls us to glorify Him with our bodies. We're called to glorify Him with our bodies. But you know what I find when we as believers use terms like that, when we talk about this idea of glorifying God with our bodies, I think the term glorify is a term that that we need to define because it's not really a term that we use a whole lot in the biblical sense. So when Scripture talks about this idea of glorifying God, when it talks about us glorifying God with our bodies, to glorify Him means that we're going to honor Him and we're going to praise Him. So if I'm glorifying God, I need to honor Him. I need to praise Him. That's what we're called to do. So our chief purpose, when you look at what Scripture reveals to us, our chief purpose ultimately is that we would glorify God, that we would glorify Him with our lives, that we would honor Him and praise Him with everything He entrusts to us. So when we talk about this idea of of what Scripture tells us about our physical bodies, the question we need to be asking ourselves is this, is the way that we treat our physical body, what we put in it, what we do to it, and how we choose to use it, does it honor the Lord? Does it give praise to the Lord? Is the Holy Spirit pleased with how we treat His dwelling. It's one of the facets of glorifying God with our bodies or making a healthy use of our bodies that Scripture emphasizes. Now, there's something else that Scripture points out that I want to illustrate to us, and that's this. A healthy body also demonstrates self-control. Look at what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. There it says this, But I discipline my body, so this is the Apostle Paul speaking, he says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I discipline my body, Paul says. I keep it under control. Now, the church in the city of Corinth, so this is whom the Apostle Paul was initially writing this to. He's initially directing these comments toward the church that's in the city of Corinth. They lived in a culture that had some similarities to our own. You know, we, we tend to think, you know, here we are living a couple thousand years after these, these uh, verses were written down, these portions of Scripture were written down. But people are people. And the culture in Corinth was very similar to ours. It was a decadent culture. And it was a decadent culture that had a low standard of morality. Now, I don't know what your opinion is of our culture as you observe our culture, as you look around, as you see what takes place in, our, in, our, in the context in which we live in. 
But I am not of the opinion that in our culture we have a high standard of morality. Some might say, maybe we're in the middle. It's not as bad as it could be. I'll agree with you there. It's not as bad as it could be. But it's not as good as it could be either. And Paul, when he was writing to the church at Corinth, he was talking about the fact, you know, he was talking to them about all sorts of things, but he was talking about the fact that they lived in the midst of a culture that had its decadencies, that had a low standard of morality. It was a culture that was actually known for being sexually licentious. And again, truthfully, when you look at our present day culture, it seems to me that we're now at the point where many people, I think the primary God that they're worshiping is a God of their own sexual appetites. That's very much what we see taking place in our culture. It's what's celebrated. It's what's revered. A God of our own sexual appetites. And in our culture right now, examples of sexual self-control seem sadly infrequent and certainly are not culturally celebrated. But one of the most clear evidences, one of the most clear pieces of evidence that we could see of the Holy Spirit's presence in the lives of believers is their demonstration of Spirit-empowered self-control. And here you have the Holy Spirit clearly teaching the Apostle Paul to value that. And by the way, when we look at the Apostle Paul's ministry and you look at the fruit that came from his ministry, his life was used to great effect. Now, how was his life used to great effect? Well, one of the things that the Lord taught the Apostle Paul to value was this idea of being under the control of the Holy Spirit, spirit-empowered self-control. And the Lord used Paul in great and mighty ways. And so you have Paul speaking here now to the Corinthians, and he, he makes a point to emphasize to them discipline and self-control as marks of a mature Christian. Now let's be introspective here when we talk about this idea of of healthy physical bodies. Is self-control something that's observable in our lives? Scripture's teaching us that a healthy body demonstrates self-control, that it's one of the marks of a mature Christian. Is self-control observable in our lives? I think that's something Scripture encourages us to wrestle with. It also shows us this, and it's a very similar thought, but it's that a healthy body doesn't gratify sinful desires. Now, throughout the course of the week, during uh, our kids' camp this week, Galatians chapter 5 was, you know, like a, a key theme throughout the course of the week. And there's a variety of things that are taught in Galatians chapter 5. But one of the things that we're taught in Galatians chapter 5 is that a healthy body doesn't gratify sinful desires. Look with me at verses 16 and 17 of Galatians 5. It says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Um, recently, I was reading through, really, I guess it was just this week, actually. I was reading through some posts that I made online 10 years ago. Now, depending how, on how old you are, uh, that can be a, a pretty uh, scary thing to do, right? <laughs> Those of you that are in your 20s rereading what you wrote in your teens, you're like, yeah, kind of. maybe I need to delete that, right? <laughs> 
Well, I'm in my 40s, so there wasn't like a whole lot of difference in my life between my 30s and my 40s, right? So I was rereading um, something I posted 10 years ago this week online, and all it was was just comments on a walk that I made one evening with my daughter. She's 19 now, but she was nine at the time. I can't believe how quickly those 10 years went by. But just the one evening, it was a beautiful evening 10 years ago this week. And I said to Hannah, I said, do you want to just take a walk? And she's like, sure. So we just took a walk. And I remember she was particularly chatty that night. And I was enjoying it the whole time. Because as we were walking around our neighborhood, we just made a bunch of laps. She just told me about everything that interests a nine-year-old girl. And when she'd finish one subject up, she'd go to the next. And she'd go to the next. And she carried the conversation that entire evening. And I remember the whole time thinking, this is really fun. I'm really having a nice time. And I was very entertained in just hearing about all the things that interested my oldest child, my nine-year-old daughter at the time, now 19 years old. It's crazy again how quickly that decade went by. But it was a fun walk, and I made mention of it uh, to her this week, and both of us kind of got a kick out of it because we realized we both clearly remember that evening. Now, we've walked many times together, but for whatever reason, that evening, 10 years ago, both of us remember just walking a long time together, enjoying each other's company, enjoying each other's conversation, And I like what Scripture tells us when it describes our relationship with the Lord. Because it describes it like a walk. It describes it like a walk. And in these verses, you have the Apostle Paul talking about this idea of walking by the Spirit. That's what he says here. In verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. So what do you suppose he meant by that? You know, as he's saying that, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, the practice of walking by the Spirit conveys the idea of moving in the direction that the Spirit empowers us to move. So we're moving in the direction He empowers us to move. And if we're walking by the Spirit, we're living the new life that we've been given through faith in Jesus Christ. We're divinely empowered to walk in the direction that the Lord's calling us to go. And the Lord's honored in that aspect of our relationship. And here's an interesting thing. If we're, if that's the kind of walk we're taking, our minds are not going to be consumed with worldly and sinful desires. We're walking by the Spirit. You know, walking empowered by the Spirit in the direction that He encourages us to go. If that's the way we're walking, if that's the way we're living our lives, our minds are not going to be consumed with worldly and sinful desires. What's going to happen is our minds will become focused on God's will because we're, we're engaged in or we're busy with walking with Him instead of running away from Him. And you see the difference between the two? You know, when I look over the course of my life, there are seasons of my life that went really well. Then there are other seasons that went very poorly. And I can tell you, some of those seasons that went very poorly were of my own making. And they were seasons where instead of walking with the Lord, I decided that I would spend some time running from Him. And when I'm running from the Lord, I'm not enjoying the aspects of His presence that He wants me to enjoy. 
my mind becomes focused on worldly things. And that's not a healthy spot to be in. And so the Scripture tells us to walk by the Spirit. Don't run from the Lord. Walk with the Lord. So throughout the course of our lives, here's the thing. You and I are going to be tempted by many different things. In fact, you're going to be tempted by all sorts of things on a day-to-day basis. But one of, this, one of the things that the Scripture is teaching us by encouraging us to walk by the Spirit is this idea that we don't need to give in to what those temptations happen to be. Our old nature, our sinful nature, is going to look at the things of this world and it's going to find them appealing. But the new nature that we've been given through faith in Jesus Christ, it understands that the desires of our heart will only find satisfaction through Him. The desires of your heart, the desires of my heart will only find true satisfaction through Him. Meaning, the false promises of this world and the smorgasbord of temptations that it casts before us. Those things will not fill us. We may momentarily think that they have the potential to fill us, but we will find out that they will not fill us. In fact, what they're going to do is they're going to leave us feeling empty and they're going to leave us feeling used. But the Scripture teaches us here that a healthy body doesn't gratify sinful desires. A healthy body is a body that's used to glorify the Lord and walk by the Spirit. Look at something else that Scripture... By the way, you thought today was just going to be about like diet and exercise, right? Surprise! You know, that's, that's a pastor's favorite thing. You know, to, to kind of... Uh, dangle the candy bar out there, right? And reel you in and then say, oh, guess what? We're talking about something that's not typically talked about. And you know, this next point that I want to make here, this is the type of thing that culturally speaking, I, I hardly ever hear spoken of. But Scripture reveals to us that a healthy body practices modesty. A healthy body practices modesty. What do I mean by that? Well, look at what it tells us in 1 Timothy 2.9. 1 Timothy 2.9, it says this, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, uh, respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. 1 Timothy 2.9. Now, I don't know what kind of conversations uh, other families are having in their homes, but I could tell you that one of the conversations that we are regularly having in our home is a conversation about modesty. What modesty means, what modesty looks like. I don't think there's, you know, you could confirm this with, with my family, with our, with our kids, but I don't think there's any ambiguity about our thoughts on the matter at this point. I don't think there's any ambiguity about it at all. Um, and I'll say this, if we as Christians are going to come to a point of having a healthy understanding of how the Lord wants us to use our bodies, the subject of modesty needs to be part of that conversation. Social media is not going to teach our children about modesty. The entertainment industry and the fashion industry will not teach our children about modesty. And sadly, many Christians that, that have influence over others don't seem to place a high value on biblical modesty either. And I think that that's very unfortunate. But admittedly, modesty could be a tricky thing. Now, why is it tricky? Why is this concept of modesty tricky? Well, I think to some degree, there's a subjective capacity to it, right? 
you know, particularly to how it uh, applies to how we adorn ourselves. Wouldn't you say that there's some aspect of it that feels a little bit gray? You know, so we probably hold the different shades of opinions on this subject. But the other thing I think is this. If we're truly walking by the Spirit, I believe He's going to lead us where we need to grow on this issue. And I think that there's a few helpful questions that we could be asking ourselves when we're talking about this idea of modesty and what it means. Let me suggest four questions that I think are useful for us to ask ourselves. One of the first questions is this. Am I truly content with who I am in Christ? Now, why would I pose that as a question in regard to modesty? Well, you see, many of the things that we're going to the, the the follow-ups to that kind of come back to whether or not we're truly content with who we are in Christ. If we understand who we are in Christ, we're not going to need to try and uh, draw attention to ourselves in unhealthy ways. Because we'll be content with who we are in Christ. We'll be content with who He has made us to be. We'll understand that our worth and our value is found in who Christ has made us to be through Him. So are we content with who we are in Christ? Second question is this. Do I dress in a way that draws unhealthy attention to myself? Because deep down, I'm insecure about myself unless I have the approval of others. So am I drawing or am I, am I dressing in a way to draw unhealthy attention to myself? Because deep down, I feel insecure unless, I, unless somehow I can get the approval of others with my appearance. I think that that's a useful question for us to be asking. Third question I think that's useful to ask in light of what Paul says here in 1 Timothy 2 is this, am I trying to impress others with my opulence or my expense? I think sometimes when we're talking about modesty, we only think about whether or not we're wearing clothing that's revealing. But sometimes when it comes to modesty, it's also about just opulence and expense Things of that nature. I, I uh, was listening to a podcast this week, and uh, I forget the exact name of this. Maybe one, one of you guys would know this. Um, but it, it's, it, there's, a, I guess, an Instagram account that's called Preacher's Sneakers. Has anyone heard of this? Does anyone know what that is? Preacher's Sneakers. I just heard about this this week. Now, I don't typically preach in sneakers, but it's Kids Camp Sunday and we're doing a picnic right afterward. So I got, I got preacher sneakers. Do you want to know how much your preacher spent for his sneakers? Let me, these are new, by the way. Take a look at the profile. All right. I was, I'll let you see the, the, the instep of it as well. All right. Preacher sneakers. Um, I just bought these. I even took a poll online to ask people their opinion. And the one that got the most votes I went with. So this is what I selected. I'm always fearful at this stage that I'm not going to know what's trendy and I'm going to keep picking things that were trendy when I was like 16, thinking that they're still cool and then finding out like, no, that ship sailed, John. That ship sailed. All right. Um, so thank you for helping me pick out my new sneakers. I think I spent $63 on them. So hopefully that's an acceptable price. They'll probably last me five years. Um, depending. Maybe if I walk more. Hannah, we got to take more walks, all right? I got to make sure that I burn these things out in a year. But apparently there's a, there's a, uh, like an Instagram account about preacher sneakers that shows these, these preachers that are wearing like these really fancy sneakers. And I was listening to some of the prices that they had listed and it's like 300 and 500. And the one guy actually had a pair of sneakers on that were a grand. And I'm like, okay, I, you know, I don't know if that's like, 
you know, just what it costs where you live. You know, if sneakers take, like, like if maybe you live in Hawaii, and since they have to be shipped over through the Pacific, um, you know, maybe sneakers cost more there. I know meat costs more there, right? Uh, so maybe, maybe sneakers cost more there. I have no idea. But the point being, sometimes modesty isn't just about, you know, whether we're wearing something that's revealing or not. Sometimes modesty is about whether we're trying to impress somebody with opulence or excessiveness. And here you could see, you know, in this portion of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that the Apostle Paul is kind of addressing that there. He's saying, like, don't, don't let your beauty find its source in, in, like, temporary opulence. You know, don't let your beauty just be something that's skin deep, right? Display some modesty. How about this? This is the fourth question that I think is worth asking. And that's this. Would it trouble my conscience to know that, that I maybe contributed in a negative way to a brother or sister in Christ struggling with lust or temptation? Would it bother my conscience to know that in some way I contributed to a brother or sister struggling with lust uh, or temptation? That bother me. A healthy body practices modesty. I think that's something that we need to wrestle with because culturally, the church needs to influence those within the church to be thinking about these things because culturally, you're not going to get that from any other place. This culture will not influence you to practice modesty. It will try and take you one little step at a time in the opposite direction until immodesty becomes the norm, even in the minds of us as believers. One other thing that that I think is worth wrestling with as we're talking about glorifying God with our physical bodies, and that's this. A healthy body can see beyond the day of its death. A healthy body can see beyond the day of its death. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He said this, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You ever um, torture your mind by posing all sorts of what-if questions to yourself? You know, I've mentioned in the past that, that sometimes I, I torture myself right when I'm, I'm trying to go to bed with all sorts of what-if questions, right when I should be allowing my mind to just, just rest and relax, but it's like when you're not busy, your mind just is allowed to just kind of drift in different areas, and sometimes there's all these what-if questions, and I think many of these what-if questions that we tend to ask tend to be uh, things related to injury, or death. And the reality is that our bodies in their current state experience death and they experience decay. Now, we don't like that thought. And frankly, even just mentioning that subject is enough to kind of spark fear in the hearts of many people, but it's the reality of our experience. Well, during the course of his earthly ministry, Jesus taught his followers about all kinds of subjects, including the inevitability of physical death. But in the midst of discussing it, he also encouraged those who knew him and those who walked with him not to fear death because he has so much more in store for us, including a resurrected body that will not be subject to death. Now, when you look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, you have Jesus teaching us not to fear death and teaching us not to fear those who can kill the body, because while they can inflict physical harm, they cannot kill the soul. 
So if we're going to have fear, it should be the kind of healthy fear that teaches us to revere God the Father who who has the ultimate authority over what happens to our body and our soul. And what Christ did uh, through His teaching, what Christ did through His resurrection and in His assurances about our future with Him, what He did was He taught us that a healthy body can see beyond the day of its death. Christ could see beyond death because he defeated it. Paul, who was used in great and mighty ways during the course of his life, he could see beyond death. He was even willing to be martyred for his faith in Christ. Peter experienced the same thing, willing to be martyred because he could see beyond his death. Do you ever, by the way, and I've mentioned this before, but do you ever notice a difference uh, in the lives of the apostles prior to Christ's resurrection and after? What happened when Jesus was arrested as he was about to be crucified? What did most of the apostles do? They fled. They ran. Most of them did, right? Except for John. John's the only one that seems like he didn't flee or hide or try and disguise himself in some way like Peter was trying to deny that he even knew Christ. But yeah, you have the, they all flee, right? They all run. But then what happens after Christ's resurrection? As each of these men are martyred, with the exception of John, whom they tried to martyr, he just didn't die when they were trying to martyr him. But all these guys were willing to be martyred. Well, what's the difference before and after? Well, is death, is a fear, is death so fearful once you know someone who's defeated it? They now knew Christ in the real sense, and they saw Him defeat death. They saw Him rise from death and defeat death and share His victory with them. So it's kind of like, yeah, you may kill my body, but I know a guy. And he rose from death and he lives within me. And guess what? That's all you can do to me. The only thing you can do to me is kill this body. You cannot kill my soul. And He's promised me that I'm going to get a new one. And you watch as these guys go from very fearful men to very brave men who are willing to deal with all sorts of persecution to proclaim the gospel throughout the generation that they lived in because they stopped being fearful of dying because they could see beyond the day of their death. So Paul saw beyond it. Peter saw beyond it. John saw beyond it. They all saw beyond it. I'm often encouraged by the historical accounts of of, uh, devoted Christians who lived in centuries before our own. Do you ever hear of a guy named John Huss? I want to finish up by just referencing John Huss for a quick second. I don't have a picture of him because he lived in 1414, right? Well, he lived prior to that. He actually died in 1414. But during the 1400s, John Huss was a man who faithfully taught the Scriptures. Uh, He devoted himself to helping others understand who Jesus is, helping others understand why we need Christ in our lives. And even though what John Huss was teaching was biblically correct, what he taught was absolutely correct, he lived in a biblically illiterate era that was dominated by leaders who idolized their power, who idolized their traditions, who idolized their superstitions. They idolized all these things over the clear teaching of the Word of God. And in 1414, John Huss was called before the Council of Constance, and he was forced to defend his beliefs in that context. And as he shared, and as he was accused, he was convicted of heresy and sentenced to be burned at the stake unless he recanted what he believed. 
So what do you think Huss did? Well, he stood firm. In the midst of all of this, he stood firm. And so they decided, all right, we're going to burn you at the stake. And so on the day of his martyrdom, this is what he said. He said, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. In the truth of the gospel, I have written, taught, and preached. Today, I will gladly die. And they say as the the flames were crackling around him, he sang a hymn. Just sang a hymn. As the flames are just burning around him. I got to tell you, yesterday I was burning some trash behind my house, and my neighbor laughed at me uh, because it it just it the flame just it was cardboard and it just ignited all at once, and I had to jump back because it came right at me. And he was laughing at me, and I'm thinking, man, I, I didn't even want to be anywhere near that flame. And here you have Huss being burned at the stake, and what's he doing? Singing a hymn. And they gave him one last chance to recant. They gave him one final chance to recant his faith, to renounce his faith. And this is what he said. These are his last recorded words. He said, what I taught with my lips, I seal with my blood. What I taught with my lips, I seal with my blood. Healthy body can see beyond the day of its death. So let me say this as we finish up. Physical health, it's obviously good. It's obviously something we want to value. It's obviously something we want to invest in. It certainly can and does often include things like diet and exercise and the typical things that we would say are associated with physical health. But as you can see, just from a sampling of some of the things that are referenced here in Scripture, there are important correlations that we need to be making between our body and our spirit, how we use our body if we use it to glorify the Lord. Through Christ, we have been empowered to walk with God. Through Christ, we've been empowered to walk with the Lord. We've been empowered to give Him glory, to honor Him, to praise Him with how we use our bodies. And we do so in life. And as Huss illustrated, we do so in death as well. There is no greater aim than to use our bodies, our life, everything that the Lord has entrusted to us to bring Him glory. Because He's the one that gave us life to begin with. He's blessed us with a life. He's blessed us with a body. He's blessed us with whatever He's blessed us with. And whatever He's entrusted to us, He invites us to then use to give Him honor and praise. To glorify His name with our life, in life, in death, with our body, with our spirit, for His glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at Your Word to be able to meditate on these concepts today as we talk about this idea of just the nature of how our physical bodies can be used, what it looks like to, to be healthy physically as a reflection of what you're doing in us spiritually. Lord, we know that we wrestle with all sorts of things. We know, Lord, that in this world that the, the world teaches us to basically blaspheme Your name with our bodies. You created us in Your image. And the daily pressure that's placed upon us as people living on this earth right now is to essentially thumb our nose at You and say, thanks for the body and now I'm going to profane Your name and how I choose to use it. But Lord, that's not Your desire for us. Your desire is that we would honor and glorify Your name 
What we say and what we do and how we use our bodies and what we put into our bodies. All of these things, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that even in the the ways in which we treat ourselves physically, we pray that Your name would be honored. We pray that we would not give in to the desires of the flesh. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be people who who feed the old nature, but rather that we would walk in the new nature. That our bodies would experience the discipline that comes when Your Holy Spirit empowers us and controls our temperament and gives us an understanding of how our bodies are to be used. And so, Lord, we know that You desire that we experience health. We ultimately experience health through faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And as a reflection of that faith, we're grateful that we have the the privilege to live these things out in ways that have physical implications. So Lord, thank you for your goodness, thank you for your love, and thank you for the privilege to just be able to think about this concept of health that you reveal in your word. We pray, Lord, that we would take this truth to heart, and that by your grace that we would live it out, and that if we have influence over others, whether it be friends or family or children or whomever, that we would help them to understand these concepts as well as we seek to live them out for your glory. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all of these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.